Welcome. We're glad y'all are here. We are going to um, pray for a moment, and then we're going to climb into our passage. If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 5, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. We're praying for, uh, praying through the gospel, or the Joshua Project. Of, uh, it's a for the Algerian people. Uh, they are uh, 29 million strong, um, north, northern end of Africa there, 29 million strong, um, 1% or so. Christian uh, presence, really more residual Christian presence from the Berbers. Uh, they were previously the, exclusively the Berber people, and they were invaded by the Arabs, and uh, what came with the invasion was conversion, and uh, now they are 1% Christian when previously they were uh, almost uh, 100%. So uh, we want to pray for this people group, 29 million people. We're going to pray for uh, the people. We're going to pray that the Lord would soften uh, access. I, I was trying to find an image. You can go ahead and put that, yeah, that image up. You can't, if you try and Google an image of Algeria, you're going to see unrest. I mean, one picture after another of all kind of crazy stuff going on. So one of the things we can be praying is the Lord would use unrest to be a place where people start to question their faith, even question their Arab uh, faith, that they would, uh, the Lord would connect um, folks who would go to that context where they're searching. So let's pray. And let's pray also for, well, I want to pray for a couple more things, or at least announce these. Uh, we're going to pray for another church. We pray for them, another church each week. We're praying for Fellowship Bible Church. And we're praying for three little 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 lads that are part of us, uh, Jack Ram, Everett Cummings, and Trevor Daniel, uh, both in different, are all three in very different situations. Uh, um, uh, Trevor and, and Everett both dealing with some medical things that are, are, are significant, and we want, uh, most of you are very, very well aware of those. We want to continue to pray for those families and continue to pray for treatment and healing. Uh, and we want to pray for little Jack Ram also, who's uh, in the coming up um, in the near future, going to be going through a therapy uh, program that we are helping them finance, uh, which I, I think is just uh, really a pretty cool deal. I think that's what the church should be, uh, that a child, that, that a family that experiences something among us means that we all experience something. So uh, we as a people have come together. They had a need of $3,600 by August 25th. And right now, as of earlier this week, it was um, at $3,100. And uh, so we're about four or $500 short of where we need to be. And, I, I, man, I just want to tell you, that's commendable, praiseworthy, and lovely. Y'all are truly a remarkable people to participate in something like so responsibly to be attentive to that. I, I love that about this church. I love that about being the church. So we're going to pray for uh, these lads going to pray for this people group and this church. Let's pray. Lord, um, this morning I want to lift up some of our, our little ones. I want to pray for Jack and his family, Lord, that you would provide the resources that they need, uh, the balance there for, their, for Jack's participation in this, this therapy that will help him uh, uh, in so many ways. Lord, we just entrust this family to you, entrust this little, little lad to you. Uh, Lord, we ask you to continue to work. Uh, just We ask you just uh, the desire of our heart is for healing for Everett and Trevor. And uh, we pray that you would uh, do something just completely off um, off schedule, off the realm of possibilities that, that would just give uh, testimony to your greatness, your, your power, uh, your surprise grace. Lord, I pray that you would really bring some healing in a way where you would get every bit of the glory. And uh, we entrust these families to you. We entrust these um, boys to you, and um, we ask you to sustain them, Lord. Uh, just uh, give them an endure, enduring uh, hope and um, their families as well as they are, are caring for them. And, and Lord, give us of you as a church family how we can 
um, how we can lift them up and how we can come alongside, uh, just entrusting them to you. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for another church in our community and praying for Fellowship Bible Church, uh, for uh, Travis Chappell and his, his wife and family. Lord, I, I pray for Travis that he uh, would really, really experience you, that you would give him um, whatever, uh, whatever he needs, whatever circumstances, whatever details, situations that he would need to go through to really be used by you. Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless him, that he would be in his studies weekly, that, that he would be overwhelmed with your goodness and your grace and your mercy, and that that would condition the pulpit and condition the heart of the, the, the preacher, uh, that it would condition the husband and the father, and that in all those things that, that you would be glorified as you are speaking through him to a people. Lord, we in, ask you to bless, uh, bless this church this morning, uh, Fellowship Bible Church. I pray that they would have really good problems of parking and, and um, space issues and uh, that they would have uh, an overwhelming uh, burden to disciple and raise up the saints for tomorrow. And um, we're just entrusting the tr that, that church to you. Lord, also we want to pray this morning for a people group. We are, uh, we considered millions of people uh, around the world each week now that are, are not... Uh, that, that don't know you, Lord, it is, it is cultivating a burden on our hearts um, and a prayer on our lips for big, amazing things. And, uh, Lord, ultimately we want to pray that your kingdom would come and it would come in the fashion and form of reaching peoples that don't know you, that, uh, that you would send workers uh, to the far corners, uh, that they would go uh, boldly and bravely with a, a great life-giving message. And, Lord, that you would... Uh, take the circumstances in Algeria and uh, the unrest, uh, the conflict, Lord, that in those circumstances that people would begin to question uh, maybe how they were raised and the faith of their fathers and that they would begin to, to, uh, to look uh, and seek, uh, that you would um, couple that with dreams and visions and with people going and saying and doing and speaking and bringing a good word of the gospel, Lord, that you would give life, that you would draw many people to you. We are entrusting this people group to you and asking you to be glorified in it. Lord, we pray that you would bless these next few minutes, uh, that you would um, speak to us, uh, that you would give us your, uh, your words, that you would equip us for something more than just something that would terminate in an hour, uh, that you would equip us for something that we carry into this afternoon and into Monday and into next week and into our dens, into our, our workspaces, into our long car rides. Um, Lord, I just pray for uh, something that would be more than a speech and a talk and a listen, but would be life-giving words that you would uh, use to equip the saints. Uh, Lord, we are entrusting um, this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> when Justina Walford moved to New York City nine years ago, she'd never felt more alone. She'd left behind her church, her God, her old city, Los Angeles. Then a secular congregation called Sunday Assembly filled the spiritual void, at least for a time. Walford had just turned 40. As a child, she had been deeply religious. Her parents had no interest in religion and didn't understand why she would. They'd sent her to a Christian school in hopes of, dis of good discipline and education. But Justina fell headlong into faith, delighting in her church community and dreaming of one day becoming a pastor herself. By the time she turned up in New York, her faith had long since unraveled. A casualty of overseas travel that made her question how any one religious community could have a monopoly on truth. But still she grieved the loss of God. 
It was like breaking up with someone that you thought was your soulmate. Walford told me, it's for the better. It's for your own good, she remembered thinking. Even though it no longer made sense to her to believe, she felt a gaping hole where her church, her people, her psalms, her stained glass windows used to be. Then Walford read an article about Sunday assembly. A community started in Great Britain in 2013 that has spread quickly across the Atlantic to her doorstep. Members gather on Sundays, sing together, listen to speakers, and converse over coffee and donuts. Meetings are meant to be just like church services, but without God. That's it, she thought. That's what I want. When Walford shed her faith, she joined a large and fast-growing group that they're calling the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. None. Or the religiously unaffiliated. According to data from the latest version of the Public Religion Research Institute's annual American Values Atlas, 25% of Americans today are religiously unaffiliated, up from single digits in the 1990s. Among young people, that number is at 39%. Even as the growth of nuns has revved up in recent years, <clears throat> the growth of secular congregations hasn't kept, hasn't kept pace. After a promising start, attendance declined, and nearly half the chapters have fizzled out, including the one in New York that Walford joined. Building a durable community of non-believers, it turns out, is more complicated than just excising God. If the sudden emergence of secular communities speaks to a desire for human connection and a deeper sense of meaning, their subsequent decline shows the difficulty of making people feel part of something bigger than themselves. One thing has become clear. The yearning for belonging is not enough in itself to create a sense of home. The New York Sunday Assembly was everything that Justina Walford had been hungering for since leaving her faith. Meetings involved sermons from scientists, artists, and academics. Members sang pop songs together, like Living on a Prayer, and snapped their fingers to poetry readings. Old-timers chatted by the snack table and invited newbies to meals outside the group. She said, I just fell in love with it. I love the singing. I love the interaction. I loved once a month seeing the same people. She became an organizer, one of the leaders of the chapter, working long volunteer hours to put each service together. And that lasted for a couple of years. And then things began to fall apart. There just weren't enough people. Making a congregation happen basically meant putting on a big show on a regular basis. Somebody needed to book bands. Find speakers, set up chairs, pick up snacks. Ann Clayson, who was board member for the New York chapter at the time, told me the same thing. The core group worked their hearts out, but it just wasn't sustainable. It kind of surprises me that it wasn't. I'm glad it wasn't. Something about this story makes me glad that it wasn't sustainable. I found one quote embedded later in the chapter, later in the article. It's in, it's in um, a, an, an article in the Atlantic, July 29th, 2019. So this is a recent article. So if you'd like to go read the rest of it, you're invited to do that. I found a, a quote later on in, this, in, the, in the article that said, you can't take out the lungs and, what'll and wonder what will happen to the body. I think the whole little experiment sort of should 
lead us to ask the question, prompt us to ask the question, what are the vital organs of this organism that we call church? What is it that differentiates us from them? Because we have a lot of the same stuff. We see familiar faces. We sing songs. We don't have donuts, but we do maybe at times. But what's different about us? The story ended with a little update on Justina. And I'll just share this little brief paragraph, and then we'll get into our message. Justina Walford, for her part, had been, has been without a community since the New York Sunday Assembly closed down. <clears throat> After relocation to Dallas. I wish it said Greenville. That'd be awesome. But Dallas is close enough. After relocation to Dallas, she tried out a Southern Baptist church near her home, and she loved it. I don't know what that says about the church or her, but it says something. She loved it. She loved the services, the singing, the people. But the more enmeshed she became, the guilter she felt about the secret she was carrying. She didn't believe in God. So she stopped showing up. Sometimes she thinks about starting a Sunday, Sunday assembly chapter in Dallas, but the idea is daunting. She knows, she knows now how much work it is and how much it hurts when things fall apart. I think this sermon this morning, this article really was, I thought it was fascinating. But I think it prompted me to think about what we're doing this morning in these next few minutes and even the content of this particular sermon. What didn't they have that we have? I think if you think about that question and think about where we're going to spend these next few minutes and what we're going to consider, that hollow existence that they described at the Sunday assembly, I think we're going to consider the nougat, the inside, the marrow, the goods in these next few minutes. So let's go to the Sermon on the Mount and see if we can find the inside that keeps us together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 is where we'll be this morning. That's home base for us. It's the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We followed a similar uh, plan in how we've dealt with these previous uh, beatitudes and asking the question, who are these people and what are they promised? And this way, we're going to kind of break that, this down into three particular questions this morning. What are these folks doing? These flourishing people, because we recognize that word blessed as actually better translated flourishing. What are these flourishing people doing? Secondly, what are they after? What are they pining for? And then third, what are they promised? So let's deal with the first question. This people apparently are hungering and thirsting. Those two words are participles. They're present tense participles. You could put an ING on them and sort of translate them that way. It kind of gives you the gist of it. They are hungering and thirsting in an ongoing state. The ancient hearer of this sermon could relate to hunger and thirst. And I think that we barely can. If at all. So I thought what we'd do in these next few minutes is try and kind of climb into how they would hear hunger and thirst. Okay, there's lots of context here for this. This word that's used for hunger is the word that's used throughout the Greek Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint for persistent hunger, like in the case of a famine or siege. Okay, so I have a little, little experiment. It's not, not an experiment. A little survey to just kind of share with you of some famines and sieges. We're going to kind of climb into the experience to sort of give us a little context so that maybe we can hear hunger and thirst the way the folks on that mountain 2,000 years ago would have heard hunger and thirst. It's a 
potent metaphor. So we're going to take the time to sort of explore it. Okay, so famine is throughout the Old Testament. If you just do a little concordance search for famine, you're going to find there are a number of situations where famine was part of the storyline. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. This is a survey. If you're like sword drill expert and you're like, man, I'm so fast in the Bible and I can do this, then go for it. If you're not, if you're a better listener, then maybe just listen for these next few minutes because this is kind of a survey portion. In the time of the patriarchs, there's times of famine. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Okay, so just watch what happens. Something's going on here. And interestingly enough, what also almost always went with famine, if not every single time, went drought. In fact, it was likely the drought that caused the famine. So hunger and thirst are things that go together. Okay, so every time you hear hunger, think thirst as well. So something here was so profound, some force for Abram to just pick up and move. All right, some of y'all have moved somewhat recently, and you can imagine, like, that, that's no small thing to say, okay, we're just going to move. A profound force was at play here. And it was famine that led Abram to go down to Egypt to sojourn there. Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that it was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac, his son, went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Okay, another story of famine and another move. Here's Genesis chapter 41, verse 53. You know the story of Joseph. The seven years of plenty had occurred in the land of Egypt... And that came to an end. And then seven years of famine began to come. And Joseph, as Joseph had, had said, there was famine in all the lands. But in the land of Egypt, there was bread. So we've got the time of the patriarchs. We've got the time leading up to the exodus. This is sort of pre-exodus context. If you've read the story of the exodus and the traveling of the nation of Israel through the wilderness, you know that that story is littered with little, little micro stories of hunger and thirst. In fact, it almost seems to drive the story, hunger and thirst. About fast forward then to the time of the judges. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Famine is leading people to move and displace and to be responsive and to go find food and water. Even true in the story of Ruth. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. Fast forward now to the time of the kings. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. Famine is all over our Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. Another story of another king and a prophet. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, one of the kings of Israel. And I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah. Obadiah is like his right-hand man. He's like his majordomo. He's like his chief of staff. Okay, He calls Obadiah, who was over the household. And Ahab says to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself. Just visualize a king stepping off by himself to find water and grass. And the other direction goes his majordomo, Obadiah, to find water and grass. Man, that's crazy. 
2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1, Elisha said to the woman, that's not Elijah now, a new guy. Elisha said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. We don't know anything about this experience. This thing called hunger and thirst. These guys know a lot about it. Their story is steeped in it. This is the last one I'm going to read, and it's probably the most graphic. But I want to read it. 2 Kings chapter 6. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. You know what a siege is when you surround a city. Okay, they surrounded Samaria. And there's great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head. Okay, I'm not talking hindquarters. I'm talking donkey's head. Was sold for 80 shekels of silver. There's no site, you know, the conversion sites that you can go to to convert pounds to euro or whatever. I wish there was a conversion site. I bet it's a lot. It sounds like a lot. How many? 80 shekels of silver for a head of a donkey. Okay, if that doesn't strike you as kind of crazy, maybe this next phrase will. And the fourth part of a cab, a cab is a quart of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Delicious. Man, that sounds... Awesome. That sounds scrumptious. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, okay, it gets worse. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. See, they're all stuck in the wall, in the city. They're seized. And he called, this woman calls out to the king, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? And the king asked her, What's your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But now she's hidden her son. Man, we know nothing about real famine and hunger. Where people will do anything to get food. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And now he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked. And behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Man, hunger and thirst and famine and drought has led and driven this story of a people right up to the point on the, where they're standing on a mountainside. It's something that we have to do some work to try and connect to. There are other accounts and details of the siege of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was besieged in 587 BC and then later again in AD 70. What happened during siege was not only were you cut off from from food, you were likely cut off from water as well because oftentimes the water sources were outside the city. Hezekiah was brilliant in that he dug a a tunnel. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel that went from the pool at Siloam under the wall and into the city so that they could survive at least and have water during siege. Doing without was so much a part of this context, they would have completely made a beeline to the metaphor that I'm afraid is really mostly lost on us. In fact, there's a, a large part of our New Testament that is populated with stories or details about collecting um, an offering for the poor church in Jerusalem all over the Roman Empire. These guys knew well what it meant to go hungry and thirsty. It is a really handy metaphor that I'm afraid is mostly lost on us. I would like to do something in these next couple of minutes is maybe just try and gather some of the effects 
of what we see in some of those uh, accounts. I'm not going to go into any details, but we can just kind of gather up the details that we see there. And maybe they might transcribe later, later on in the sermon as we consider hunger and thirst for us. Just in, in Abraham's case, we can consider that he experienced something so strong that it actually made him move, like pick up and move. Some force that's so profound that he would even pick up and move for. Okay? The same is true of Isaac, because it's deja vu all over again. Feeling so strong, such feeling, and such, such circumstances, so profound that it makes you pick up and move. In Joseph's case, he experienced, or they experienced in their context, a hunger that's so profound that it became people guiding. That it was through those circumstances that it led a people to land in Egypt and then to survive and then later to multiply and then to go through the events of the Exodus. In the story of Ruth, hunger provides a very nice fitting background for a story of redemption. If you know the story of a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. In David's case, hunger, what it did with David is it got his attention and led him to seek the Lord for three days. You remember the account. In Elijah's case, hunger can be mobilizing and stirring. Ahab goes this way, Obadiah goes that, that way. A king marches into the woods by himself looking for water. He's lost his identity as a king. His pride is not keeping him from going. A circumstance is so profound, his office has almost dissolved. Hey, I'm an able-bodied human being. I'm going to step off and look for water. Obadiah, you go that way. And in all of these, gather up some of those circumstances. In all of these, hunger and thirst are so specific, aren't they? For you can't, um, you know, you realize in each of these circumstances where they're starving or they're thirsty, you can't give them anything else to replace their need. Now, if you're experiencing a time of real hunger, going to the shoe store is not going to satisfy you. This issue of hunger and thirst is so specific, and it does some wonderful things here for the people of God. It's people guiding, it's mobilizing, it's stirring. It causes them to seek the Lord. God uses these circumstances, in this case, in Obadiah's case, in Ahab's case, to even park their pride and their position so that they could quench their need. These, these things that we're looking at, this hunger and thirst, again, in each of these are present participles. And going back to the beatitude, the flourishing those who are flourishing and happy and experiencing this real life of fullness and wholeness are experiencing these types of things in an ongoing way. Present participle with I-N-G on the end, implying it's a constant yearning and a perpetual longing that continues. So some of these sensations of being willing and responsive, even to the point of moving. Man, think about that for a minute. Who do we pray for at the beginning of this sermon. We prayed for workers. Maybe someone in here is experiencing a hunger and a thirst. It's so profound that they want to figure out, how can I move? That's the kind of hunger and thirst that we're talking about. Something so profound that it would even lead you to pick up and go move. That we could experience something so profound that it would be people guiding this force at work in us, that it would be people guiding, that it would be so profound in us that it would get our attention and lead us to seek the Lord like in David's case, for three days straight. That it would be mobilizing and stirring. Sensations like these are a way of life for the flourishing. So that's the first question that I want to deal with this morning. What are these folks doing? 
hungering and thirsting, present tense. The second question that I want to deal with this morning is, what are they after? The word there is the word that's just, you can see it right there in the beatitude. The word is righteousness is what they're after. The flourishing or the hungering or those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is the thing that they are after. And I thought about just kind of replacing this thing with some things that I could relate to. I've still never had a Terry's burger, but I've heard they're amazing. But that's the carrot. You know, that's, that's the thing. That's the righteousness that they're after. The Chiloso's baked avocado, if you've ever had that, you know what I'm talking about. That's something worth pining for, worth hungering for. This is the cool drink from the pool at Siloam. This is the San Pellegrino that's cold and right out of the fridge. It's righteousness. That is the meal. That is the cool drink that these flourishing are after. They're not after a new pair of shoes. I know this guy that really likes shoes. You know anybody that really likes shoes? Like they just got to have a new pair of shoes, and they're always thinking about how they're going to get new shoes. Okay, I'm going to take the next few minutes and sort of just be really... um, vulnerable with y'all about a few things because you know exactly who I'm talking about, most of you. Okay, they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're not hungering and thirsting and pining for a new pair of shoes. They're not hungering and thirsting and pining for an old house that they dreamt of and lived in years ago that they'd like to live in again. I think um, Amy Wade has led me and Christy uh, through three or four, maybe five old houses on Park Street. Every time one pops up on Park Street that we think is cool, we go look at it. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not hungering and thirsting for that cool mustard-colored vintage land cruiser that you sold when you first moved to Greenville that you wished you hadn't, that you can imagine driving even still yet today. It's not pining for that Henry all-weather 30-30 that you could also envision shooting at a deer on your next hunt. It's also not that cool colander from Williams and Sonoma. See, I'm not really pining for that. I've been sharing my Christmas list so far. That's not on my Christmas list, but I thought I might connect to some of the other people that I know actually might be pining for something like Williams and Sonoma. It's not that watch. It's not that ring. It's not that electronic gadget that's going to make your life better and make your life easier because you can just tell it what to do whenever you need it. These guys, the ones who are truly flourishing, the ones who are truly experiencing wholeness, shalom, and fullness are actually pining for something altogether different, or more so at at the very least, and it's called righteousness. This is what the flourishing and truly happy are hungering and thirsting for. That last part of the sermon there in my notes there where I'm sharing some of the stuff that I think about from time to time, the stuff that comes to my mind as I'm thinking about things that I'd like to have or I'd like to get, I want to share with you all, I, I hesitated to share all that because I was being kind of vulnerable and feeling kind of silly, frankly, during the whole time. Because I'm thinking about um, maybe the closest thing that I could think of to connect us to the concept of real hunger and real thirst is our hunger and our thirst for more stuff. Because I know I'm not the only person in the room that's thinking about stuff like that all the doggone time. Or maybe I am. Maybe I am. It's a little embarrassing to have to consider that I, my closest that I can come to thinking about hungering and thirst is thinking about stuff that I want to get or have or places where I want to live or things I want to drive. It's a little embarrassing, but maybe we'll try and work with what we've got. Because, see, our, des- our desire for stuff and more stuff can be strong enough to make us move, can't it? Let's be really honest. It could make us move. 
or at least think about it. I've thought about moving closer to Trader Joe's, for real. <laughs> a desire for more stuff can certainly be life-altering. I hope this makes some folks uncomfortable, at least. Who hasn't sat in a car dealership and thought about what you'd be willing to give up so that you could make the car payment on the car that you just test drove? Anybody? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> Anybody? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I don't feel so alone up here. It's happened to me before. We will make some life-altering changes for some stuff. We can envision ourselves driving it, owning it, parking it, putting our stickers on it. Man, our desire for stuff can certainly be attention-gaining and mobilizing and stirring you go that way and I'll go this way. Some of the stuff that I've thought about in a car dealership is just embarrassing. I'll go without Starbucks. That will save this much per month. I'll go without lunch. That will save this much per, per month. I'll go without gas. We could just have it parked. I mean, how creative can we get to just try and get more stuff? The links we'll go to to save a few dollars on stuff that we barely like just for the little hit of dopamine that came after from saving those few dollars and the enjoyment that you got of telling your buddies how, how much you got it for. Man, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm having connect to stuff to just try and connect in some way to this notion of hunger and thirst. The links we'll go to for more stuff is a sad tutor, a sad, embarrassing tutor. Look at Matthew chapter 6 of hunger and thirst. But we have such a great Lord. You know, I've kind of embarrassed myself in these last few minutes, but let me just show you that at least the Lord knows me. And if anybody else could connect to any of those images these last few minutes, then I could say that he knows you too. Because it's in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, he says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust that's not the passage I want to read. I want to read the next one, verse 25. Therefore, I, I should read that one too, but I, I might as well, but I'll read 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, nor what you'll put on. Don't worry about those shoes. It's not, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? There it is. Thank you. He knows me. Lord, or look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a singer out? single hour to his lifespan and why are you anxious about clothing stop please consider the lilies of the field how they grow they neither toil nor spin yet I tell you even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these but if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven will he not more, much more clothe you O you of little faith Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Ouch. Right? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first. There it is. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Our Lord must truly love us, knowing us so well, and yet going the distance with us, because he speaks right to the heart of what we're all prone to. Pining for and hungering and thirsting for the wrong things. But those who are truly flourishing are going to be pining for and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 
the truly happy aren't hungering and thirsting for dopamine and more stuff. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I want to spend the next couple minutes talking about this thing called righteousness. This is really going to take up the sort of the majority of the, the rest of the sermon, just considering righteousness, this thing that we're supposed to be hungering and thirsty for. At least we can kind of maybe connect to the, the pining. Maybe we can kind of connect to, embarrassingly enough, some of those things that we've pined for, some of the things that have altered our lives so that we could have. And we redirect that on righteousness and go, okay, that we see what we should be pining for. Now we can understand what righteousness is in these next few minutes. I want to take a moment and deal with righteousness in three different ways. He doesn't say what kind of righteousness he's speaking of here. So I think really in some ways he's speaking about three different, and I'm I'm going to tease them out, and then we're going to synthesize them back together. Three different ways to look at righteousness. Here's the first way. Legal righteousness. The second is moral, excuse me. The second is social righteousness, and the third is moral righteousness. Okay, so let's deal with the first one. The first one is probably the least likely of what he's speaking to, but I think it's embedded within it. So we're going to take some time because it's just so, so good anyway. Okay, legal righteousness. If this is what the truly flourishing are pining for, let's try and make sense of what this thing is, this substance or this thing called righteousness. It's ironic this, this, this word is actually synonymous with the word justice because the way Paul uses the word righteousness is really beyond justice. It's a scandal. It's good. And even though I don't think this is specifically, especially what Jesus is speaking about here on this mount, I think it's implied, and I'll show you where I think it's implied. Okay, legal Righteousness. As Paul deals with righteousness, here's a great example of how Paul uses this term, righteousness, in Romans chapter 4. And to the one who does not work, he's speaking of the works of the law, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, his faith is counted as this thing, at least we're talking about topically for the moment, righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So the word is synonymous with justice, but I would probably call it surprise justice. Because what Paul is talking about here, what Paul is talking about specifically, is this thing called imputed righteousness. That whenever you trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, you enter into union with him. And your guilt is counted as his. He paid for your guilt. And his righteousness is counted as yours. That's what Paul is talking about when he uses the term righteousness. Almost universally. And now Paul didn't write Matthew. But it's such a sweet consideration. And I think there's a little window into it. Into the Sermon on the Mount as well. Which is why I bring it up. It's not just talking about a pardon for someone who's guilty. Because that's pretty awesome, right? If you're in jail for something you've done wrong and you're pardoned, that's pretty great because then you go free. We're talking about something beyond that, okay? The, the guilty are not only pardoned, but they are now reckoned righteous. That's the scandal of imputed righteousness, the surprise justice that I'm talking about. And here's a little window into the Sermon on the Mount, as I think hints at this surprise justice. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He's been speaking about their, their, um, his, his fulfilling the law, and he ends this little section here with verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness... Okay, this is the same conversation as the Sermon on the Mount. 
So this is within just a few breaths later as he's preaching. He's speaking about righteousness again. So we can know that these are connected in some way. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now here's what's crazy about this. The scribes and Pharisees, I would suspect that when he said that, that that mountainside full of folks would have looked around and gone, what? You mean my righteousness has to exceed those guys? Because those guys are crazy devout. Those guys have given their entire lives. I even they wear special clothing. Those guys have given their entire lives to the faith. And you mean I need to be more righteous than them? Those guys tithe their dill and cumin. Man, I've imagined what the offering plate would look like. Look like a mixing bowl. You know, you got dill, cumin in there. You got some beans. I'm going to tie the beans. What all's in there? These guys are devout. And you're saying to me, I got to be more devout than them? Man, I think that's where we connect to something else that's happening. You got to be on a different program than some sort of good works program. You got to be on a completely different program where you are united to Christ by faith and imputed with righteousness. That's the only way your righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And it'll change your motive for doing good works altogether and your means for doing all good works altogether. Man, that's a delightful, delightful concept. You better be on a different program than hoping to be righteous enough on your own. Imputed righteousness through union with Christ is as fine as it gets. And that's probably not what is primarily going on here, but it is too sweet to pass up. And I think it's implied in that comment about the Pharisees and Sadducees. Social righteousness and moral righteousness, I think, is where we're going to spend most of our uh, effort here, at least in connecting to what he's talking about. Social righteousness. If you've been here for these last few weeks, you know that as we've dealt with these, these earlier beatitudes, we've connected to the poor, we've connected to the meek, we've connected to the mourning, and we've connected them to the passages in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 61 and in Psalm 37 that are dealing with the oppressed and the afflicted. We've connected to the images that we have to connect here. Given the nature of those first three beatitudes, there's a sense of vindication and deliverance for the poor and the mourning and the meek and the oppressed. So flourishing are those whose lives are marked by hunger and thirst. For here's the, here's the sweet one of this, this social uh, righteousness concept. A hunger and thirst for God to set the world to right. A hunger and thirst for God to set the world to right. Now, if you were paying attention these last few weeks, and if you've even thought about the concept of the last three things I named, being poor in spirit, mourning and meek, you could, should consider, first of all, this is not apparently a good state to be in at first blush. Mourning? Anybody up for an exciting helping of mourning? How about some meekness? How about some poverty of spirit? This is not, apparently, at first blush, a good place to be, to be dissatisfied. Listen to this. To be dissatisfied because of an awareness of how not right the world is. And to be in a place of longing and need for Christ's return. The word for me that keeps coming up in my mind is the word dissonance. Dissonance. Like when somebody plays the wrong notes. And you can just tell, you're like, oh, that doesn't work. 
That doesn't sound right. There's something going on there where something is not reconciled. It's not resolved. That hunger and thirst in the context of dissonance is what I'm talking about here. To be dissatisfied because of an awareness of how not right the world is and to be in a place of longing and need for God to return, for Christ to return. And at first blush, it sounds yucky with poverty of spirit, mourning and meekness, yet it is precisely these who are described as flourishing. It is precisely these people that would have gotten excited about those promises in Isaiah. It's precisely these people that are spoken of in Isaiah 41. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, answers them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Man, that's quenching the thirst of an oppressed people. The social righteousness is speaking to a hunger and thirst for God to set the world right. Martin Luther had a great quote speaking to this on hunger and thirst in this passage, actually. He said, the command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert, but to run out if that's where you've been and to offer your hands and your feet and your whole body and to wager everything you have and can do. What is required, he continues, is hunger and thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated. One that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of the right. Despising everything that hinders this end. He said, if you cannot make the world completely pious, then do what you can. Then do what you can. Somebody was hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for God to set the world aright, considering slavery. I'm talking recent history. William Wilberforce in England wrote in his diary when he was 28 years old. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of morals. This guy with others labored despite determined opposition to abolish the slave trade in Britain. Somebody was hungering and thirsting for God to set the world aright. Somebody got angry about wrongs. Charles Spurgeon had some of his sermons burned in America due to his censure of slavery. He called it the foulest blot. Somebody was hacked. Somebody was hungry and thirsting for righteousness and said, this isn't okay. He's called it the foulest blot which may have to be washed out in blood. <laughs> There's a name for that. It's called the Civil War. In fact, it was. 
John Wesley denounced human bondage as the sum of all villainies. Finney preached that slavery was a moral sin and so supported its elimination. He said, I had made up my mind on the question of slavery and was exceedingly anxious to arouse public attention to the subject. In my prayers, in my preaching, I so often alluded to slavery and, and denounced it. You know who really pressed the issue of slavery in the United States actually started pressing it about a couple hundred years before Emancipation Proclamation? It was a group of Quakers. Faith stirred them to say, this isn't okay. This is not okay. In 1688, Dutch Quakers in Germantown, Pennsylvania, sent an anti-slavery petition to the monthly meeting of Quakers. By 1727, 50 years nearly later, British Quakers had expressed their official disapproval of the slave trade. Three Quaker abolitionists, Benjamin Lay, John Woolman, and Anthony Benezet, devoted their lives to the abolitionist effort from the 1730s to the 1760s. People giving their lives and coming and going and being buried a hundred years before the Emancipation Proclamation. But they were part of the story because they got hacked about something. They said, this is not okay. We should have a room full of people that have some circumstances right now that we're saying together, we are hungry and thirsting for righteousness. This is not okay. If abortion does not top your list, man, you really, I would love to spend some time with you and plead with you with a new set of eyes. I hope it's not 100 years before there's some sort of emancipation from that crime. But there's something going on here where we hunger and thirst for it, and it compels us to move It compels us to be what this sermon is about, being salty and bright and aromatic in dark places, in a decaying world. But if we insulate ourselves and isolate ourselves from these kinds of circumstances in our world, then man, it's no big deal. It doesn't affect me. You're not salty. And you're not bright. Man, hunger and thirst for righteousness, it sounds pretty painful. But apparently, it's part and parcel to truly flourishing. It sounds like it might really be hard. But wouldn't you rather flourish and put in your hand to something meaningful than just go on living lives in American dream? I got mine. Man, somebody got hacked, and they acted on it. The last little window into righteousness is brief. That's social righteousness. I'll throw this out there too. Somebody along with social righteousness really should hunger and thirst to set the world aright by curing cancer. That probably sounds as pie in the sky as the conversation did with the Quakers in the 1700s. Like, who can actually do that? There are young people in this room that you could dedicate your lives to science and being a doctor in Jesus' name. And putting your hand to scientific study that would somehow change tomorrow. Set the world aright. That God would use you to set the world aright. To actually put your hand to something, being salty, bright, and aromatic, to be a, a, a preserving presence in our world. And some of the young people in this room, you're thinking about what you want to do with your life? Man, you need to go visit Trevor, Trevor Daniel at the hospital. Man, that'll stir you. The dissonance. It'll break your heart, but it'll stir you. It'll stir you to put your hand to something meaningful instead of just collecting more stuff. 
right? Hungering and thirsting for something that is righteous. That will put the world to right. Here's the last little window into righteousness is moral righteousness. In Matthew, uh, righteousness oftentimes is, is used in a way that has, something, uh, has some act involved or an identity involved. And Usually in the book of Matthew, it's involving an identity. But there are certain occasions, circumstances where it's an action. And within the Sermon on the Mount, it's referenced a couple times as an action. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're not going to be persecuted because of imputed righteousness. Like, that's invisible. You don't walk around with a sign saying, I've been imputed with righteousness, and then the world's going to say, oh, I'm after you. We're talking about some righteous acts. We're talking about some movement. We're talking about some things that you actually do. As the people of God in this dark and decaying world. We're talking about movement. Here's another little window in Matthew chapter 6. Also in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. We're talking about some things you actually do. Some actions. Okay, We've talked about righteousness as an idea. Imputed righteousness. We've talked about righteousness as a, a burden. A social burden. And now we're talking about it in a way where you're actually moving and putting your hand to something. You're actually doing things. Righteous works, to put it plainly. I want you to just consider this question. How could anyone, just think on this, ponder on this. How could anyone have a strong desire for right standing with God without also having a strong desire for right living in response? Like even what we might call hunger and a thirst. If you don't have that strong desire, I don't know that you understand or even have participated in the imputed righteousness part of it. I don't know that you've even participated in the union with Christ. If that alarms you, then maybe it should. It is a natural response of union with Christ to have a burden for, I don't want the dissonance within. I'm talking about the dissonance without where you see the world, things in the world that say, I want the world to, I want God to set this aright. Now I'm talking about dissonance within, where you see these things in yourself where you go, Lord, set this aright. Please take this from me and give me something Christ-like in its place. Please change me to be like Christ. Man, we're talking about actual things that you actually do. The true disciple of Christ hungers and thirsts to live a godly life as much as a starving man hungers for food. That's flourishing. Some words that I've heard over the years, and I can't remember the writings. I think they're Puritan writings maybe where you view your own sin as odious. What a great word. Odious. That's the dissonance. Ah, I hate this within. Lord, please replace it. And you are governed then by a hunger and a thirst for a righteous life that reflects the surprise standing that you have with this good God through Christ. Robert Murray Machane, actually from our Machane Bible reading, uh, the guy that organized that Bible reading said, Oh God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Isn't that great? Please make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. You do the work. So the promise, we've asked and answered hopefully the first question is uh, 
what are these folks doing? And secondly, what are they after? And the third question is, what are they promised? They're promised satisfaction. I'm just going to show you a couple of passages. And then we'll have our supper together. And it'll be a fitting time for our supper. Turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for God to set the world aright. Those who hunger and thirst for righteous lives, where the dissonance within is resolved. Now, what are they promised? Matthew chapter 14. Beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there to a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Okay, I'm just reading two passages to land the plane here. But I want you to watch what's happening. Okay, we talked about what they're doing. They're hungering and thirsting. What are they hungering and thirsting for? Righteousness. Especially social and moral to some degree. Possibly legal. But they're thirsting and hungering for righteousness. So here's the promise. And here's where this promise plays out. The promise is satisfaction. And this crowd is here. They've been listening to Jesus preach all day. And some of the folks that get mad at me at a long sermon just consider Jesus preached for like three days. All right? Like literally three days. All right? And he says, all right, you need to send these guys away to go get some food. And Jesus said to them, they, not, they, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate. And here's the same word in the Beatitudes and were satisfied. That word satisfied actually means filled and like fed. Like it's the word that they use for like fattening a calf. And the proof is in the pudding here in the extra 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And in case that little window into that story where he says, come to me and I'll give you satisfaction, I'll fill you, doesn't give you the picture, then turn the page over to to, to chapter 15. In case we didn't need that story, we have like a deja vu all over again. And it's worth reading again. In verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. See, there it is. I wasn't lying about that. Three-day long sermon. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to go to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed this so great a crowd? They didn't learn the lesson from chapter 14. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they ate. And here it is again. They were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets, in this case, full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. The reason I share those two stories is I, I've mentioned this before. The Beatitudes have places in the rest of the book of Matthew where they're illustrated. 
That's the fulfillment of it right there. That's where it's illustrated. I haven't been talking about it. As I broke this thing down into legal and moral and social righteousness, I broke it down into three little pieces. I, I was very um, cautious about doing that because I wanted, to, I wanted to make sure it all came back together in this one thought at the very end here. All three of those things come back together in the person and work of Christ. If you try and separate those ideas, like, the, for example, the moral righteousness out on its own, then you, you've lost Christ. If you want to find some sort of social righteousness and you leave Christ out of it, then you've lost it. It's not there. It's hollow and empty. And the same would be true. You're not, you know there's no imputed righteousness for you apart, apart from Christ at all. He is the righteousness that we are to hunger and thirst for. He is himself the legal, the social, the moral righteousness that we are to hunger and thirst for. He is himself the answer to all dissonance. He is himself transforming our lives as we follow and hunger after him and thirst for him so that we look more like him. He is the fulfillment of all of these righteousness because he is himself the righteousness that we are to hunger for. We started out the morning considering this hollow church, the Sunday assembly, that's gathered around a hillside. Just imagine this hollow assembly gathered on the hillside, but there's nobody at the center. That's why it comes apart. But in our case, there's a being at the center, a person at the center, a savior at the center, a teacher, a preacher at the center, and his name is Jesus. And we're populated around this hillside and we're enjoying a message from him. And we're realizing in the message also that he is not only the message, he is also the meal. I am the righteousness that you're to pursue, is what he's saying. He is our righteousness. He is the center of this church thing. Man, whatever this sermon was this morning, however you heard this, I hope that what you got loud and clear, at least here at the end, is that what keeps us together as a people is the per- personal work of Jesus Christ, period. I like seeing familiar faces. I like seeing songs. I like, I like the kind of things that we do, but those are all outflow and overflow of the person and work of Christ. We are gathered around a hillside that is someone is squarely planted in the center, and he's distributing a meal to us as well and saying, take and eat. You don't have to go anywhere else. If you're hungry and thirsty, I've got you covered. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for these few minutes that we've had together this morning. Lord, I pray that we've enjoyed Christ. I pray that you would just uh, stir us to consider this sermon, to consider this this Savior. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would stir us to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness that is Christ. Lord, we enjoy him this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read a passage to you from John chapter 6. It's after the account of him feeding the 5,000. In John chapter 6, a group of people followed him. He'd walked on the Sea of Galilee. He'd gotten across the the sea there, and they're like, how'd that happen? They're showing up, and they had to walk around. And they realize he walked across, and they're showing up saying, man, what in the world just happened? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves, because I fed you yesterday. He says, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered him, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe, like forgetting that he just turned the loaves and fishes to feed the multitudes the day before. It's ridiculous. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. That's what we should say right now. It's fitting for us to say that this week. You know, before we take this supper, as we've been talking about being hungry and thirsty. You know, together we could, I don't know that I can figure out some way for us all to say it together. But hopefully you can say it on the inside right now. Sir, give us this bread always. And here's what he says. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Let's distribute the elements.